Welcome back to Farming on Purpose. Today, I have Rick McNary here for an interview, and I'm really excited to hear all of his insights about local food and local food systems and his work in Kansas and outside of Kansas. Rick McNary is a writer, photographer, global hunger expert, and founder of a Facebook group known as Shop Kansas Farms. For 20 years, he served as a pastor of a church in Potwin, Kansas. After going on a mission trip and interacting with starving people in Nicaragua, he organized a humanitarian food relief organization. Today, he is still involved in those efforts through the Outreach Program, a nonprofit that organizes food packaging events across the country. Rick has published three books, and many of his articles have been published in Kansas Farm Bureau's Kansas Living Magazine. So welcome to the podcast, Rick. I'd love for you to expand um, a little bit on this. Welcome back to Farming on Purpose. Today, I have Rick McNary here for an interview, and I'm really excited to hear all of his insights about local food and local food systems and his work in Kansas and outside of Kansas. Rick McNary is a writer, photographer, global hunger expert, and founder of a Facebook group known as Shop Kansas Farms. For 20 years, he served as a pastor of a church in Potwin, Kansas. After going on a mission trip and interacting with starving people in Nicaragua, he organized a humanitarian food relief organization. Today, he is still involved in those efforts through the Outreach Program, a nonprofit that organizes food packaging events across the country. Welcome back to Farming on Purpose. Today, I have Rick McNary here for an interview, and I'm really excited to hear all of his insights about local food and local food systems and his work in Kansas and outside of Kansas. Rick McNary is a writer, photographer, global hunger expert, and founder of a Facebook group known as Shop Kansas Farms. For 20 years, he served as a pastor of a church in Potwin, Kansas. After going on a mission trip and interacting with starving people in Nicaragua, he organized a humanitarian food relief organization. Today, he is still involved in those efforts through the Outreach Program, a nonprofit that organizes food packaging events across the country. Rick has published three books, and many of his articles have been published in Kansas Farm Bureau's Kansas Living Magazine. So welcome to the podcast, Rick. I'd love for you to expand um, a little bit on this and tell us what you're up to now these days and um, any big takeaways from that um, introduction that you'd like to expand on. <laughs> sure. So as it was mentioned, I was a minister for 20 years and went on a mission trip outside the United States and saw hunger up close and personal for the first time. Uh, that's been almost 20 years ago now, but anyway, a uh, small five-year-old starving girl in Nicaragua came stumbling out of a house and began begging for anything that I had, a watch or my shoes or a hat and my money, and finally ended up just that holding up her arms, or holding out her arms. I picked her up, and I say she was uh, beautifully filthy, had a little dress on backwards by a little doll, and squeezed my neck real tight and asked me to feed her because she was hungry and starving and that just ruined me. <laughs> I decided I was going to spend the rest of my life doing things to help fight global hunger. So that launched me into taking teams around the nation, around the world to do a lot of relief stuff. And it was actually, I'd started that organization you mentioned about uh, that helped volunteers in America to package meals and 
uh, fast forward to 2010, a uh, we had sent about a million meals down to Colombia, South America, because their farmers had had crops, their crops wiped out with flooding. And I went down a little bit later to kind of check on everything. And my son, Isaac, went down with me. And we tumbled out of the Andes into this old Spanish town with the cobblestone streets and the bougainvillea falling over the side of the adobe homes with the wrought iron windows and doors. And Anyway, they gave us a parade at 2 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon. And as we were walking down the streets, the mayor pointed to the hills and said, you know, without the farmers, we die. Mm. And it really hit me that, you know, if I'm going to be involved in international hunger, I need to, I need to understand agriculture. So, you know, when you look at the story of South Kansas Farms, it really kind of all started there because that launched me into understanding how farming worked. And I went to a conference in Manhattan, an agricultural one, and I think this was in 2010 or 11. And uh, I asked one of the people, I said, you know, I see these signs that say Kansas farmers feed 155 people plus you. That's really great, but how does that work? You know, I, I grew up in the country of rural Kansas and, you know, worked for farmers a little bit in the summer, enough to know that's not what I w- wanted to do with my life, especially bucking bales in the 100-degree weather. <laughs> and he said, uh, but, you know, it gets grown here and then it gets shipped somewhere else and you get it on your store shelves. And it's like, yeah, because I've never bought anything from a farmer. And behind me in my little town, there's a cornfield and a block north is a pasture and cows and calves. And, but I don't buy anything from those guys. And there was a, a he started talking about a real interest with direct-to-consumer sales from farms wanting to sell directly to consumers, you know, meat or produce or whatever it was. And there was another guy standing there. His name was Kurt Kastner. And Dr. Kastner was the head of the uh, Kansas State University Food Science Division. And great guy. And he said, ah, there's also kind of a bigger thing at play with all of that, too, with the local food, you know, buying stuff locally. And he said, do you know what a food system is? And I said, well, I've heard of it, but I don't really know what it means. And he said, well, a local food system or a food system is broken down into three things. Production, somebody's growing something, plant or animal. The second component of that is processing. Once it gets that point of maturation, you got to figure out how you get it ready to get to you know plates so people can eat it. And then distribution. How do you get it there? So those three things are the basis of a food system. And he said, this direct-to-consumer sales also ties in with an interest on a national level about how they can build local food systems that have all three of those components. And at the time, he was serving on Janet Napolitano's Department of Homeland Security. And he said they were wanting to figure out ways that they could build practical local food systems that had all three of those components of production, processing, and distribution. And as he pointed out to me, you know, processing was the one that was missing mm-hmm. in a lot of communities, especially around vegetables. But they at the time were wanting 
hundred miles before it reaches our plate. And uh, you know, I had a banana for lunch or breakfast this morning, and like, yep, that did travel a long way to get to where I was. <laughs> they were worried about the threat to that supply, and a local food system is kind of a backup mechanism, a resilience. You know, certainly never take over the big one, and it's wonderful. But so that just sent me down this path of how do I make that happen in my own community. And uh, at the time, there was a group I was connected with in D.C. called the Hunger Free Communities Network, and they were looking for models of how do you how do you fight hunger on a local level and get access to people with good food and create it in such a way. So I wrote a model that was based on two things. One was a business development, and the other one was community engagement, and you know around the food system. So uh, I was. The organization I'd founded was in El Dorado, Kansas, and we started working in El Dorado and making great traction, you know, on how do you build out a practical, especially for vegetables. And, you know, there was a meat locker in El Dorado, and so you kind of had that figured out from the beef standpoint or the pork, but with vegetables, and especially, you know, you got, if you're growing vegetables, you've got to get it to a farmer's market within a few days or, you know, toast, unless... You can create value-added products. Well, it takes a, a certified kitchen, a commercial kitchen, to make value-added products. So, for example, if you're raising tomatoes, you've got to have that in case you want to make, you know, Uncle Box salsa. You know, that special recipe you have if you want to sell it. So, develop that model, and then we're making great strides, and then um, the. Uh, uh, my path was chosen to go a different route and not by me. <laughs> okay. uh, suffice it to say that way. So, yeah, so my uh, days at the foundation of the nonprofit I founded actually came to an end. Also came the conclu- the, the crushing of the, the model that I was working on in El Dorado. Mm-hmm. But that was in 2012, and I just kept getting really in engaged and doing a lot of research and how do I start a local thing, tried a variety of things, worked on some stuff internationally. And a couple of things that I saw were gaps that were missing was one was if you were really one of the local food system, you had to have a digital hub that connected all three of those things, the processing or the production processing and distribution. Mm-hmm. If you really wanted the local system. And the other thing I saw was there has to be some commercial kitchens, especially that can be leased out and not just eight to five, you know, that's connected to some office that's open eight to five Monday through Friday. You know, because a lot of entrepreneurs are, you know, they're working late at night or all through the night, you know, or on mm-hmm. Saturdays and Sundays trying to grow their food stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm just kind of tried a variety of things and pretty much a square peg and round hole. Everything I tried just kind of kept failing, but it just, you know, it's some stuck in me and I couldn't, it wouldn't let me go or I wouldn't let it go. You know, this idea of, boy, I'd like to see a local food system and get one practically started. So the, uh, the pandemic hit, of course, in April of 2020, and we had begun buying things from local farmers. So we had on that Tuesday evening had a dinner of great beef that we had purchased from Craig and Katie Carruthers of uh, Anthony. And, uh, you know, the pandemic was 
pretty bad news and bad stuff. And <laughs> so we were watching a Hallmark movie, trying to find some, you know, a little spark of joy in the midst of the, the misery. And, you know, I just had a recliner kicked up. And my wife said, oh, I went to the grocery store today and the meat counter was empty. And just kind of a casual comment. And I'm like, well, that's kind of crazy. Um, I wonder what I might be able to do. Now, kind of back up the story a little bit. In 2015, I'd actually started writing for Kansas Farm Bureau uh, feature stories about their farmers simply because I wanted to understand agriculture. And I figured the best way to do it was to go interview people that did it <laughs> and find out you know, their fears or frustrations or hopes or successes. And so I was at a lot of farms, a lot of homes, you know, six o'clock in the morning, sitting around, having a cup of coffee with them and then bouncing across the field in a you know, buggy or a pickup and, you know, having to wipe a little barnyard off my boots before I went home that evening. And I learned a lot about it. farming and agriculture, just fell in love with them. I just love farmers and ranchers. And so I knew a lot of those that did the direct-to-consumer sales. So I'm, that Tuesday evening in, a, in April of 2020, I grabbed my laptop, and I'd been trying to figure out how I could get more people to fall in love with farmers. And, and well, here's a, I can, you know, how can I connect them now? So I started a group called Shop Kansas Farms. Now, I've got enough marketing and back, sales background to know you name it what you want people to do. So it became an active phrase, you know, Shop Kansas Farms. With the intent, the vision was to connect you to the wonderful farm and ranch families of Kansas so you can purchase the food they raise. That was the mission. And I reached out to a few folks I knew that sold direct to consumers, asked them to post their stuff, what they had to sell, how they could be found. Then I also reached, you know, invited a few of my friends and made it public so anybody could join. And I checked back at 10 o'clock that evening, and it had grown to 400 members. And I thought, well, that's kind of odd. I'm not even sure I know 400 people. <laughs> um, anyway, the next morning, it had grown to 1,000. By the next evening, 24 hours later, it had grown to 5,000 members and was just going crazy. And at the time, people could post whatever they wanted to post. Well, you know, it's social media and so, you know, a farmer or rancher posts, oh, I've got this for sale and this is a price. And then somebody that was used to buying, you know, bargain discount type of stuff, it's like, that's ridiculous. And how could you charge that? And then somebody else would jump on and say, well, you know, uh, and make something political and get nasty. And it, it was just, it got ugly in a hurry. And Megan Kramer, the communications uh, director of communications and marketing Kansas Farm Bureau, you know, I've been writing for her for years and knew Farm Bureau folks well. And Megan's like, um, you need some help? I'm like, man, do I need help? I feel like a little kid walking in front of a dam, you know, I saw a little plug. I'm like, huh, I want to know what happens if I pull on this thing. <laughs> I pull on it, and the next thing I know, it's a flood, and I'm going down, you know, stream head over tea kettle and dying. <laughs> So Megan and Nancy Brown with Farm Bureau threw in a life raft and they came in and rescued me and started putting some rules and things in place. And it grew to 50,000 in a week. And it was all just people buying and selling, uh, you know, food, stuff raised on the farm. 
So that was kind of the genesis of it. And three days into it, when we had hit 13,000 members by Thursday of that week, I realized I had inadvertently created that digital hub that I had seen missing. Mm. So to this day, if you look at, at the Facebook group, you're going to see it's a digital hub. And it's got the producers, and you're going to see processing and the distribution. All three of those things are conversations that happen in almost every post. So, for example, a farmer will put up or a rancher, you know, I've got a quarter of beef, and it's at the Moran locker, and you can pick it up, or I can bring it to you. So those three things have already been dealt with, production, processing, and distribution. And it has then, of course, immensely from there. I think you're at a hundred yeah. and almost 162,000 members now today. Yep, yep, you're right. It continued to grow, and that one thing I learned from farmers was sustainability. And so the people were, you know, a lot of farmers were asking me from the beginning, you know, is Shop Kansas Farm going to be around after the pandemic calms down and people were back to used to shopping like they used to. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I'm a person of faith, and so believing that stewardship is a really big issue for me, that I had kind of been given a gift, almost a miracle, of this thing that happened that actually dovetailed into something I've been studying for 12 years and trying to figure out how to make happen. Uh, it happened very differently than what I anticipated, but then it's like, okay, so all the stuff that I know, how can I put those things into play? to make sure that it's sustainable so that in the future, you know, farmers have a good place to sell and consumers know where to go to find them. So there were some things that we put in place. One of them was a website. One of the first things people were asking for is, you know, we're tired of scrolling through all the Facebook things and we don't know where everybody is. Can you make a map and a directory? Mm-hmm. Well, Google and Facebook don't play well together. So my wife and I decided to, um, invest our own money and stop shop, start shop Kansas farms as an LLC. So we invested our own money and hired a designer and a person to do the website and the map, the searchable map. And that's how it got started. And that continued to grow and farmers could put their, their farm and their ranch or whatever they were in, in on the map. And so consumers could go find them without having to scroll through all the Facebook. Mm-hmm. So that was one really important part of the continuation. We also did that because, and even to this day, if Facebook wants to shut us down, they can. You know, it's a free platform. And right. we learned early on that there were some things that Facebook, you know, we learned what you could and could not do. You know, so for example, and and other platforms, they do this, you know, they'll put a picture of a live animal, but for ours, if you put a picture of a live animal and, you know, steer, for example, and say, you know, this one's going to the locker and you can buy the quarter holes or has, it'd get blocked before you even got to us. Mm. And of course, you know, Facebook never tells you why. And so we're trying to figure it out and finally, you know, it's like, oh, Okay, so we make a rule then that says no pictures of live animals. Uh, and so, you know, it's just kind of figuring that out. So we put the website in in case, you know, Facebook ever disappeared, then people would know. And I'm, I'm told by some marketing folks, you know, if we've got 160,000, it's a pretty good 
fair estimation that at least 750,000 people know of the brand. Mm-hmm. And I know enough about branding and marketing now that we were trying to build a, a trusted brand and all of that, both for the farmers and the consumers. So the website was a, a huge part of that. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing that we did that is, uh, it was really big. The second thing we did that was really in response to people, you know, consumers. So, you know, when people ask me, what was the, what propelled that initial growth? And because I've worked in international hunger, some people call it food security or food insecurity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's more of a, that's a term that either scientists, researchers, or uh, government people use. I have yet to have a hungry people, and I've met a lot of hungry people come up to me and tell me they're food insecure. Uh, they tell me they're hungry. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's a word that people that have food usually use that describe people who don't have. So I know what drives people and what grow. And I, I actually wrote an article for uh, uh, AgriPulse, an op-ed about this saying, Kansas farmers calm public fears because what drove the initial explosion was people were fearful. We've got great quotes of people saying, I, I, we live off the store shelves. We don't live off the land. And when the store shelves were empty, we had a new kind of fear. One of the things that I've tried to do is to turn that fear into love. You know, I want people to love the farmers and ranchers. And so the website and continuing on, and we've seen that transition. So the other thing people were asking for is, gee, can you have like an expo or a trade show? Can we come meet all these farmers? So in 2022, the uh, city of Lyons in Rice County, they've got this great place. And of course, Rice County and the city of Lyons are like right smack dab in the middle of Kansas. And they said, we've got a celebration center if you want to come out there. And have whatever you want. We'll just, you know, whatever. We'll help you in any way we can. So we called the first one uh, an extravaganza, but on Saturday we called it the Market of Farms. And I chose that name because, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer. And so I also know that certain words put certain ways, like farmer's market, means certain things to certain people. So for many people, farmer's market is something you go to on a Saturday, but it's usually local growers and then it's a local crowd. Well, I knew that we were going to be attracting vendors from all over the state, as well as consumers from all over the state, or at least I hope so. So we called it the market of farms. Mm-hmm. And and we had 42 vendors. That's all we could handle. About 42 vendors showed up, and they literally showed up from all over the state. We had vendors that drove two and a half hours just to show. And they bring, you know, those that had meat to sell, they brought freezers and just rolled them in. And so they had their meat. Most of them sold out. And in fact, on that day in Lyons, now to get a picture of this, the, around the celebration center is a massive parking lot, but it's all gravel. Mm-hmm. And so on that day, on March 22nd, or March 2nd of 2022, more than 1,400 people showed up at the celebration center. And as one of the farmers said, they came to buy, not to browse. And uh, the people from Lyon said, we knew they weren't from here because they parked in the parking lot wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if you're Lyons, you know, you park north and south. Well, people that didn't, you know, there are no stripes, you know, so they people pulled in. It's like, okay, we'll park east and west or wherever. So it was a a massive success. And 
And but one of the things that I talked to the folks in Lions was that you know I I because I'd never done this, so this was all new to me. But one of my leadership principles is commit and then figure it out. And so I said, you know, if this is uh, if you guys will do this, but would you please kind of get a few people together, kind of key stakeholders in you know Lions or Rice County, and I have an idea I want to share with you. Well, basically, it was my local food system model. And Stacy Clark you know, was just this incredibly delightful, wonderful, brilliant economic development director for Rice County said, sure. <laughs> so we met in the city hall in Lyons, Kansas, and I ran them just briefly through my local food system model, again, which is built on the idea of business development. So it's to help existing businesses find new sources of revenue. But it's also meant to stimulate new people with a lower entry level into creating food type of products to sell. And then the other part is the community engagement. And I use a model to, that you know really brings people together. And so they were like, yeah, we'll listen to it. So they just started meeting. And that was in uh, April of 2022. And they continued meeting, continued meeting. I helped them find and then write a grant for it ended up being around $143,000 from USDA. Uh, and they got it. And to really build out this idea of what a local food system looks like. And the out of that has come the formation of a nonprofit they call the Harvest Hub. And it's including all of Rice County, so some of their initial things. And this is all, you know, the Harvest Hub just got it filed. It's 501c3 and kind of became official the last couple of weeks. But the city of Bushton, which is in northern Rice County, they heard about this. And they're like, well, because uh, I keep saying, you got to have so many commercial kitchens that can be leased out. And so um, the... Um, the some folks in Boston had a high school that the local school system had just kind of abandoned and made this the, the town buy the high school back, and so the people were like, "Well, it's still in good shape, you know. We want to keep it." So they had a, a you know the old school kitchen was a commercial kitchen and took just a very little you know paint job and a few other things, and now they just rolled it out. I think last week that they're going to be able to lease it out. They got this really cool fob system that. You know, you can go in and work with KDA and KDHE to make sure everything's legit. And, uh, and so they worked on that. They've also, you know, got this money to, and they're hiring a new executive director, kind of on a half-time basis, an administrator. Uh, I was out there yesterday in one of the, the uh, Central Plains Co-op in Sterling, which is still a part of Rice County. They're building a little storefront, you know, so farmers have a place that they can sell their products. So. So it's really, truly a dream come true. This model, this food system model that I've been wanting to do for years, they're making it happen. And it's just exciting as it can be. And I have rambled a lot. <laughs> no, you <laughs> made my I'll, job. I'll take but... a breath and let <laughs> you made my job super easy because I didn't have to keep asking questions. You just answered the next one I had without <laughs> me asking. <laughs> that, that makes it perfect. Um, well, I'm excited to learn more about Harvest Hub. I think I heard from the folks in Rice County just earlier this spring about the plans and how things were unfolding. So I think they're going to have to come on and tell us more about all of the work that they're doing. 
um, and local food. But I did want to hit on a couple of things that you said and then get your opinion about just some things um, that have maybe shaped your focus here as this is all unfolded in local food. And it's interesting to me because I think a lot of folks hear about Shop Kansas Farms and think this is an amazing, wonderful thing for local food. And it is. But your work in food and food security expands so far beyond that, that did you have any frustration that things were not going the way you hoped they would, or they wasn't getting the attention that it deserved prior to Shop Kansas Farms? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we're, people were just comfortable with the system. You know, I can stop by this grocery store and they've got everything that I need. Why would I buy local? And sometimes it's more expensive or there's, you know, there's no farmer's markets. And so and people weren't accustomed to it. They weren't trained. And for a lot of people, you know, that frustration, you know, from the consumer standpoint was, especially we saw it when Shop Kansas Farms took off, they didn't understand what the farmers were talking about. Mm-hmm. And so there was a communication gap, too, that has been largely bridged, but it's still there. But, yeah, a lot of the frustration that I saw, and I also, in the full candor, saw a lot of money for the last 12 years being thrown at food system stuff. Mm. But one of the things that often doesn't get dealt with is that local processing component. Yeah. Like you cannot have a local food system if you don't have the ability to process both meat and vegetables and fruit into some type of a value-added product. Mm -hmm. And so unless you're seriously talking about a physical, practical local food system, it's not a food system to me. It can be, you know, initiatives around food, but it's not a system. And so, you know, I, I think systemically. And so one of the things that I am passionate about is establishing a system that involves all three of those things. And I, and I should mention, and I neglected to be a part of that story, last year, you know, Shop Kansas Farms continued to grow. And I finally went to Kansas Farm Bureau, my dear friends, and said, would you guys be interested in buying it? It's still a stewardship issue to me. It needs so much more help, resources, and brilliance, and more people. And Terry and Megan and and, and the board's like, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. But you got to hang around for five years. So <laughs> um, as a consultant, it's like, well, that's perfect. That's what that, I wasn't going to ask for that. But yes, I'd love to do that. But what they were interested in was this was the website, the market of farms, which we are also turning into a franchise. So we're doing it in various you know places around the, the state, but also the local food system model, you know, because they see that as being a, uh, a huge need. And so, and to help their local farmers that are in these, especially rural counties and give them new revenue streams, you know? So, mm-hmm. so I think it, one of the most encouraging things is the president of the newly formed Harvest Hub is Chad Hook from Sterling, who's also the president of the Kansas of the uh, uh, Rice County Kansas Farm Bureau group. Mm-hmm. He's a commodity farmer, but he loves this. He's one of the biggest champions for this local food thing because he sees the ability for farmers to take control back of some of the. The things now they're going to continue, and we need them to continue growing. You know, thousands of acres of corn and Milo, and, but there's a there's a niche 
that's up there. It's available. And so, and, and some different profit margins. So the things that some of the frustrations that I saw was, uh, the missing was the processing component, but also in that missing was the development of those digital hubs. Uh, if you're going to have a regional system, people, you know, we're online now and yeah, you can Google, but to find production processing and distribution in the system, you got to Google several different things and you have to know what you're Googling. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be great if you went to a website and it's like, Oh, here's so if you went to the new, and one of the things shop Kansas Far, uh, farm bureau did was build a new website for shop Kansas farms. So you can go there and you can find, you know, places who process, you know, right now they're neat, but we're going to be putting out those, those commercial kitchens that are available. Um, and places that people can find that. So the digital hub that was missing and also the attention paid to processing. So the fastest growing businesses we've seen in Shop Kansas Farms since the beginning of it are those who make value-added products. So if they take the tomatoes and make the salsas or if they take whatever and make it a shelf-stable product, one of the ones we saw grow exponentially was uh, jalapeno butter. Mm-hmm. So it's basically a cream cheese type of a thing made with jalapeno. So a guy in Stafford County was, he and his wife had were growing jalapenos and they were making these jalapenos or however you say it. They were making this butter and uh, this was cream, but you had to have a commercial kitchen. So they had a small local place that they could do that. You know, somebody had a commercial kitchen. They put their stuff and it's called Turkey Knob uh, Jalapeno Butter. And they put it on the Shop Kansas Farms advertised it for the first day, and they had in one day 880 orders. Holy cow. Their business has grown so much now, they have to have all their stuff done in Kansas City because there's nothing in Stafford County that can handle that capacity. So that's, again, that, that missing component, that's been a, a source of frustration. So. You go ask anybody in the food system conversations in Kansas if they know me and if they know what my number one complaint is. It'll say because they don't talk about food, don't talk about processing. Until you settle that problem, you don't have a local food system. Yeah. Well, with that being one of the biggest inhibitors to local food systems, do you think that with increased profit margins that some of these farmers are seeing by going direct to consumer, is that something that the farmers themselves are going to have to invest in or where does that priority placement on getting that missing component come from? Well, right now I'll tell you a story of a, of a couple that have figured that out and have done exactly what you just said. It's Joel and Lori Bruce. They're from Augusta. They got Bruce's bullseye farms. So this is now, funny. They were just on the podcast um, a couple of weeks ago. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I don't know if they told you the story, but Lori grew up in my hometown, uh, the town where I pastored. And I tied the knot between her and Joel, I think, 27 years ago. And they are the yeah. true uh, pick yourself up from the ground, bootstrapping, and, or, you know, I mean, they have come from nothing. And have created this incredible business with, you know, brilliance and education and hard work. But she did that. You know, she was, 
she was looking around for a kitchen because, you know, she could do the jams and jellies at home because of the cottage laws that allowed her to do that. But she wanted to expand. Mm-hmm. And so she finally had to find her own place. And she found a beautiful little place, or she made it into a beautiful place in Leon. I was down there a couple of weeks ago. So, yeah, that's part of, uh, well, you know, she's been able to increase her business. It's given her opportunities to expand. You know, she makes beer rocks and all kinds of stuff now, but again, have to have that. Uh, it'd be great if a community, again, the idea, my model is the community engagement. So that means the community starts thinking about how do we help provide opportunities for these entrepreneurs? How do we fill the gaps that they need that they might not be able to afford right now? And a commercial kitchen is one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just being a friendly environment for those types of businesses to grow is all about having the resources they need. And if that's one of the missing pieces, then like you said, with the school in Bushton, I think you said the having a resource that yep. was there not being utilized. Exactly. Um, and I know the extension. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. The extension office, uh, Wendy Hughes with the extension office there in Rice County, which is in Lyons, they've got a commit kitchen. It needs some modification, but that's what they're looking at. It's like, it's just, you know, people are like, oh, I didn't know, realize that's what was missing. And now that we know, it's like, oh, let's go do that. Yeah. <laughs> and so seeing those kind of solutions. But again, it's a community. And one of the things that I, you know, with the community engagement, and it's what I've encouraged the folks with Harvest Hub is that logo. And it's a really cool logo. They came up with it uh, a couple weeks ago. They finally got it finalized. But it's like, man, you put that logo on everything that you possibly can. You put it on the outside of the kitchen. You put it on packages. You start training your people in Rice County that, oh, this food comes from right here in Rice County. We're going to go buy it. You know, you build a processing place. You know, they may actually even looked at vertical farms. Mm. But man, if you put vertical farms in, you don't grow greasy lanes. You slap that logo on it. Start training your people in your county to go, oh. I recognize that logo. That means that did come from Rice County. And you and I both know that, you know, the term local could for some mean Colorado. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I've seen a lot of things like, hey, these are local peaches. They're Colorado peaches. Like, um, That's not local to me. That's local to them. So the definition of local is like, uh, it could be, it could be Kansas or it could be Oklahoma or Texas. There's a new phrase out, hyperlocal, and hyperlocal means within the uh, within a 50 mile range. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think that, that an important piece there of language is so important as this kind of new system is developing or continuing to develop. You mentioned it earlier as well, where you said that you've never had a hungry person tell you that they're food insecure. They say they're hungry. These terms that we're using as this local food trend happens, like hyper local or, you know, locally produced and processed, um, even more production focused terms like grass fed beef. Do you think it's a problem that a lot of these don't have definitions or that we're not necessarily speaking the same language when we're talking about food insecurity versus hungry versus different marketing terms for the food we're trying to get local people to buy? 
Absolutely, Lexi. And rephrasing those things, you and I both know that cliche phrases are cliche because they're comfortable. Mm -hmm. But after a while, a cliche phrase means nothing to anybody. Mm. So, for example, I'll get you, I'll illustrate this. I had a young couple that were musicians, and they wrote and recorded their own wonderful music, and they were invited to do their first concert. And so they got up to, and I was working with them, and I said, okay, when you talk to this crowd, what are you going to say? And the guy, you know, I mean, they're incredible songwriters and musicians. I said, let's craft your opening thing. And he said, well, okay. And I thought about it for a little bit. And so they, I said, pretend I'm your audience and you're going to talk to me. And he said, well, thank you guys. You know, thank you for having us tonight. We really appreciate you guys being here. We hope you have a good time listening to our music. And I said to him, that's good, but that's very cliche. Hmm. Think about this. Those people that have invited you, what does that really mean to you? How long have you wanted to have an audience that you could perform in front of? And so they, they sat down and they rewrote it. And so their introduction came out this way. You guys realize that you are our dream come true? We've been praying and dreaming about having an audience we could sing to, and you guys are the first one. I was there, and I watched the crowd, and they were just like eating it up. So yeah. I think that we have to be really careful in redefining or changing the phrase around. So, for example, market of farms. It's kind of touching base with a little bit of a cliche, but it's like, well, that's different. And so you're immediately getting people, well, how's that different than a farmer's market? So I say, well, two things. One, they're vendors from all over the state. And two, they're consumers from all over the region. That's different than a farmer's market. Mm -hmm. So I think redefining words, uh, you know, that's why I've really been driving with Rice County to slap their logos on stuff. So you're training people to know that food comes from Rice County. And so when somebody comes in and says, I've got local food, these are peaches from Colorado. So you're going to train people to go, well, if it didn't come from Rice County, it's not really local. But yes, redefining, using different words, coming up with different words, rephrasing things in such a way, not falling into cliche is an important part of this local food movement. Yeah, making that messaging really hit home and providing, I think, the surrounding education that for some consumers is lacking or just like you mentioned earlier, there's a disconnect there. I think we've seen a lot of progress in that disconnect with the introduction of digital marketing and like you have done with Shop Kansas Farms, a digital hub for people to kind of meet and discuss these issues. But a lot of the time, both in how we connect with consumers and I think in how we shift to a more local food system, we feel like we're playing on someone else's turf because like you mentioned with the rules that Facebook has in place um, and how they kind of limit what you can see or say or do. Do you think that some of those concepts of playing on someone else's turf is a problem as more farmers are focusing on like more independent niches versus just being another cog in the bigger food system? That's a fantastic question. And I would, I, I have seen that happen 
And the way I've seen it happen is uh, producers feel compelled to set their prices based on what uh, a market mm-hmm. price is. So I'm just going to be frank. When I see somebody saying, I'm trying to keep my prices of my stuff in line with the prices, the current cattle prices, hog prices, or whatever. Right, right. As a con- as a marketer and as a salesperson with a whole lot of background in this stuff, I look at that and go, how much money are you leaving on the table? If you're still trying to compete with a market that somebody else sets, I really don't think you understand that the consumers, some consumers, now I've, been, I've heard that it's an 85 to 15 split. And you and I both know that old 80 to 20 to 85 to 15 is kind of a standard in anything you do in life. Yeah. But if there's 15% of the people who will pay more and can pay more, and then you have to create this niche that says, here's my product is more valuable than that. And this is why you can come to the farm and see me. You can meet my family and our children. You can come see our operation. And so I think that's one of the things that I look at farmers and ranchers and think you might be boxing yourself in because you're trying to meet, you know, whatever the national market is for beef that day, maybe or pork, and maybe you have people that that's all they're going to pay. But if you tell your story well, and if you craft a relationship with people, and if you build the trust with a the consumer, they'll pay you more because they know where it comes from, it's better, how it's raised. And so I think that, you know, especially farmers and ranchers are missing on an opportunity for higher profit margins because they're still trying to compete with whatever the current market price is for their product, as opposed to letting the consumers determine and being willing to pay that price. So, you know, it's, it's all value. It's perceived value and people pay perceived value. Now, are you going to want to compete? Is that what you want to do with all the big box stores and their bottom basic prices? If that's what you want to compete with, then you're not going to make much money and you're not going to be successful long term. But if you're willing to create uh, and understand your own value. So from my standpoint, I think that's one of the things that I see farmers and ranchers struggle with the most. And I want to shout out to them. You're more valuable than that. Mm. People will pay more. I will. Yeah, I'm only 15% of the population, but I'll pay more. Would you rather have 15% people pay you more, or would you rather try to hit that 85% that are going to, you know, they're accustomed to paying this price? And so I, I think that that playing inside of that box, and I think that's a box that uh, farmers and ranchers have been put into, and they stay in it if they don't understand that their stuff is more valuable. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I tell people when that started from the beginning is when they would ask me, the farmers and ranchers, you know, well, pandemics, you know, well, this shop Kansas farms will also have it on market. And I've said to them all from the very beginning, if you build a strong customer base and have customer relations, yes. Yeah. I think that's one thing that I wish more people understood as well, because folks that listen to the podcast know that I work in marketing. I I'm a marketing consultant and at the very minimum setting all the other things aside that you mentioned, a farmer who is going to sell direct to consumer has to do more marketing 
than a, a farmer yeah. who is just taking their animal to whatever traditional market. So at the very minimum, right. they need to be getting paid for the extra legwork they're putting in to do the marketing. Exactly. Nothing else. Exactly. Another question. So you that's something you wish that a lot of farmers who are tying into local food systems knew more. What's something that you wish people who are interested in local foods or maybe just looking to make a change? What what should they know about local foods and food products? They need to come up with five questions that they can answer as they start looking around. And I think that those five questions for any consumer. So if there are consumers listening to this, here are five questions you need to start asking about your food mm. and to help you buy on a local basis. One is, and you meet the people who grow it. That's number one, because this is about relationships. Mm-hmm. And the second one is, do you know their story? Because storytelling is such an important part, as you know, Lexi, of marketing. Corporations spend billions of dollars crafting stories around their product. So when people walk into a national chain and they see a certain brand, they've seen the commercials, they've seen the photos, they've heard the story around that brand, so they're buying the story. Now, farmers, don't have that national exposure, so they have to work really hard at telling their story. But to the consumers who are looking around, first one is, can you can you meet the people who grow the food? And second, learn their story. Ask them their story. Because it's in that you're going to learn about the family. You're going to learn about. And I tell people, uh, anytime you talk to a farmer, just ask them what succession, what, where they are in the generation succession of their farm. So the first generation, second generation, third, fourth, fifth. Because what I've learned in all the interviews I've done is that they usually tell you within the first couple of minutes, I'm a third yeah. generation farmer. I'm a first generation. Just ask them. The third thing is, how do they grow their product? How do they take care of how how is it grown? And, you know, there's 
so much fear marketing. You know better than anyone else, actually, how fear-based marketing is an incredibly effective form of marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned that as a kid when dad would invite visiting ministers into our church. My dad was a pastor, and some of those guys came in with hellfire and damnation servants, and man, you just walked out scared to death. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's how I learned fear-based marketing was listening to some of those guys. You know, I ended up liking the guys that talked about the love of God a whole lot more. And I think that the uh, understanding how things are grown and letting the farmer tell you will calm a lot of the fears that are placed in people by major corporations. Mm-hmm. They're putting fear in you based on the idea they want you not to buy something else. They want you to buy this product. To me, one of the most egregious examples of that is a Heinz commercial, a ketchup commercial a few years ago. And you can YouTube it and find it. You know, they have this thing that's panning out all of those these tomato fields and this glorious tomato field. And, and the, the narrator says, you know, none of our tomatoes are GMO. You know, our product, none of this is GMO. Mm-hmm. That's fear-based marketing because there's no such thing as a GMO tomato. There's only 10 GMO crops and tomatoes are not one of them. So, so to insinuate that tomatoes are GMO, first of all, I think GMOs are perfectly fine. We cannot feed this world without it. They've been genetically proven, but I know it's a, you know, somebody's based to build a fear-based campaign. So, you know, ask the farmers how they do their stuff. So that's the third component. So the first one is, do you know who they are? The second one is, can you hear their story? The third one is, can you ask them to explain how they grow their stuff? Because this is all an educational process. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fourth one is, and you go see their farm. Uh, not all farms are set up for agritourism. And for those who consumers who are listening, it's an insurance issue most of the time. Um, you know, you get consumers on your farm and suddenly, you know, insurance companies and lawyers have opinions about that. Yeah. And so farmers are afraid of that a little bit. You know, can you at least drive by and see it? So I think that's the fourth thing. And the fifth thing I would ask, have consumers ask is, Okay, so if I buy it once from you, can I buy again? Mm-hmm. It, it all stems back to a relationship. You keep going back to the same store most of the time to buy because you know where things are. You know that they're going to have it available. They're going to know. So in asking, can I buy from you again, especially if it's a beef product or it's a produce, you'll hear them say, I don't have anything else ready for this month, but yeah, next month in six weeks, I'm going to have more ready. And so I think those are five questions that a consumer can ask that really helps the consumer learn about the farmer, learn about the process, and learn about the continuation of being able to get the product again. Absolutely. That last one that you said, I think, is probably why we became so dependent on grocery stores in a larger food supply system in the first place was that consistency and availability when you know you yep. can get the exact same thing again next week, it it becomes habit forming. Yeah. So having that same kind of a concept for your local food is important as well. Well, this has been extremely eye-opening, I think, for anybody who's interested in local foods. We have a lot of folks um, who 
are direct to consumers, farmers that listen to the podcast. Um, my last question for you today is just how has this journey with Shop Kansas Farms changed or confirmed what you think about local food and local food systems? <laughs> well, it's certainly confirmed all the things I've been researching and dreaming about for the last 12 years. Like this local practical food system is going to work. It's needed. And watching Rice County put my dreams into motion and then put their own flavor to it, like, yeah, okay, I was right. This is not, I'm not just some, you know, I'm not Don Quixote chasing windmills, you know, off a donkey. You know, these, these are stuff that, so seeing that confirmed like that, the pandemic, of course, changed everything, gave people a heightened sense of a need for it, but also the excitement that comes along with buying food from people that you know, and you can drive by their farm. Yeah. Well, I said that was the last question, but I actually have one more. And that is, <laughs> where can people go to learn more about the work that you're doing? And we also have a lot of folks outside the state of Kansas who listen. If they're interested in doing something similar or getting something started in their own state that mirrors the work that Shop Kansas Farms has been doing, what advice do you have for them? Well, they can go to our website, shopkansasfarms.com. And in there, basically, it's called build a local, build a community around food. That's the local food system model. So part of what Kansas Farm Bureau and it wasn't just for Kansas Farm Bureau, but they saw a need in various states. Part of them bringing me on was to develop and to really codify my ideas of this local food system. They add their flavor to it and build it out into a consultative model. Mm -hmm. So you can contract with Shop Kansas Farms to bring me and a team in to your state. It can be your community in Kansas or it can be anywhere else. It's a two-year process. Uh, and there's we you know, we can talk price tags if you're really interested in it, but you can just reach out. It's Rick at shopkansasfarms.com, or you can jump on shopkansasfarms.com and hit the contact page and, and email us, and then we'll begin the conversation. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Rick, for sharing all of your insight and the wonderful story of what you've been working on, not just since 2020, but for so long in your work with local food and hunger. Um, and I real quick want to just plug on your behalf, um, the book, one of your books, there's three of them, but um, the one particularly related to our conversation today is Hunger Bites. And folks can find that on Amazon. So super easy to get a hold of that. And I think that's a great place to start um, with those kind of bite-sized stories. If people are interested in learning more about hunger and food security and local food as well. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And we'll hope that lots of people follow up and learn how to do more things with local foods in their own communities. Welcome back to Farming on Purpose. Today, I have Rick McNary here for an interview, and I'm really excited to hear all of his insights about local food and local food systems and his work in Kansas and outside of Kansas. Rick McNary is a writer, photographer, global hunger expert, and founder of a Facebook group known as Shop Kansas Farms. 
For 20 years, he served as a pastor of a church in Potwin, Kansas. After going on a mission trip and interacting with starving people in Nicaragua, he organized a humanitarian food relief organization. Today, he is still involved in those efforts through the Outreach Program, a nonprofit that organizes food packaging events across the country. Rick has published three books, and many of his articles have been published in Kansas Farm Bureau's Kansas Living Magazine. So welcome to the podcast, Rick. I'd love for you to expand um, a little bit on this and tell us what you're up to now these days and um, any big takeaways from that um, introduction that you'd like to expand on. <laughs> sure. So as it was mentioned, I was 